Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. From Foreign Policy and the Climate Investment Funds, this is Heat of the Moment. I'm John Sutter. All season long, we've been focusing on issues of justice and fairness. What does it mean to make a just transition away from fossil fuels in a way that everyone is taken into account? So far this season, we've discussed issues like what happens to a coal town after its power plant closes? What would it look like to truly include indigenous and other marginalized voices at international climate talks? And what do lower income countries need to transition to clean energy? Throw all of this under the umbrella of what's being called a just transition away from fossil fuels. It's a thorny issue. We have to transition to clean energy as fast as possible to avoid the worst of the climate crisis. Yet, who should finance this, especially for developing nations? Later in the episode, I'll speak with Pamela Coke Hamilton, a leader in international trade, who says it's not just about building new infrastructure, but rethinking entire economic systems. I think there's a growing recognition that we can't keep doing the same thing over and over and expect a different result. And that there's a growing impatience as well uh, about the maintenance of the status quo in everything, but wanting change to happen. It doesn't work. But first, we head to Ghana, a place which is fast losing one of the world's most vital weapons against the climate crisis, trees. Between 2002 and 2021, Ghana lost about 20% of its forest cover, according to Global Forest Watch. Among those responsible? Illegal miners. Reporter Elodie Toto traveled to Ghana to better understand why illegal mining persists and what can be done to better protect the forests of West Africa. As I walk in the earth of the humid forest of Ghana, I find myself in the middle of a cocoa plantation. In the streets, the heat is stifling, but here the air is fresh. A small breeze passes between the trees. The orange color of the pods indicates that the fruit is ripe and ready to be harvested to be transformed into chocolates. I continue my walk through this idyllic landscape when suddenly it turns into a landscape of devastation. The earth has been deeply turned over. Holes are several meters deep and here and there I can see large ponds of brackish water. The landscape give the impression of having been heavily bombed. We had just come across an illegal mining site. El Dadakam, coordinator of the Queen Africa Youth Organization, or GAIO for short, accompanies me. He often comes with his team to these kind of places to talk to the miners. We come in to educate them, to give them a clear picture of the long-term effect of their activities on the environment and also alternative livelihood, which is more sustainable. Because if you want people to stop going underground for gold, then what are the alternatives? And that wears black jeans and a t-shirt of his organization with the Gaio acronym written in bold green. As we approach, the miners hide. As illegal mining is officially deeply targeted by the authorities, 
small-scale miners fear their visit, so it's important for him that the miners recognize him as a member of an NGO and not as a government agent. They've known the government to be the one chasing them with guns, with the police, with the military. But instead of coming at them with guns, why not come at them with solutions? If people are better informed, definitely how they see mining will also change. It takes a lot of work to get even the smallest amounts. We get very tired. We have to really work hard to get anything. Generally, illegal mining is risky. Being attacked, being killed on site, being robbed, being polluted by the very chemicals that they use in their processes. When I get home, I notice I have terrible body pains. I take a lot of medications and use a lot of creams to manage the pain. I take a lot of medicine. It's not easy at all. It's very hard. The woman Eldad is talking to is a single mother with four children. Her galamse business is the only thing that supports them. Eldad knows that his goal is not to guilt trip the illegal miners, but to get to know them in order to help them to find an alternative solution adapted to their situation. So far, advocacy work has yielded a couple of results with people being taught the adverse effects of illegal mining. When these people have education, they are able to better appreciate the effects of their choices. And then when they have a choice, they will definitely not look at the one that puts a stress on their health and then their environment. One of the miners who wish to remain anonymous speaks English. I'm asking him how it works. First one, have to open the deposit before you reach the good. You use a water pump water with heavy speed so that it's washed and we take up the good. The use of excavators explains the level of devastation in which we are now. Here before, there was only forest, trees that the machines uprooted. Then the miners burned them. The pace of deforestation has greatly increased over the past three years. This is because, in addition to local galamstem mining the lands, foreign miners from China has also begun illegally clearing the forest. Making matters worse, the Chinese brought with them sophisticated excavators which have become widely adopted by all the miners. Another part of the problem Eldad and his team at Gaio face, some miners believe their excavations are relatively harmless. If they look at the chain of events, if they look at the small area of their operation, they would say it's not affecting the forest because they are not really destroying huge acres. But if they are looking at the point of view that forest includes trees, wildlife, water bodies, and so if they are polluting water at point A, it's going to have effect on biodiversity and then life in point B as well. Dr. Reginald Guerin is a researcher at the Forest Research Institute of Ghana. He's currently working on a project to restore areas degraded by mining. He's giving an alarming report on the current state of the forest in Ghana. If illegal mining continues at this uh, pace, we are going to end up with very significant deforestation. That would mean that we are losing the forest completely because with mining it is not degradation, it is a complete loss of the forest. 
and not just the forest, it's also a degradation of the land itself. These pits need to be filled before any rehabilitation activity can take place. Until now, I do not know of any current government plan to pay for refilling of these pits. Aware of this reality, Eldad decided to act at a more local level. For this, he went to the village chief where he met the illegal miners. In Gamma, they are the ones who have the real power over land. No land can be sold without their agreement. We here can put our foot down so that anyone who mines on our land should fill up any holes left on the land. If we are firm in our decisions and unite, the people who come to mine here will have no choice but to agree to our demands. I think it will work. Eldad is not the only one fighting to find alternatives. Last year, Ghana launched a $100 million project to restore its degrading landscape and clean up its small-scale mining sector. The government also has programs to promote cocoa cultivation. I know Cocoa Bird has a program where they provide seedlings for cocoa planting under the Greening Ghana campaign. But first, the authorities should put in place mechanisms to reclaim the land. Eldad has met a man who had begun farming mushrooms as a way to both heal the land and find a new source of income. After he has gotten his mushroom for over a four-month period, uh, the decayed organic matter will now be used, will be spread over the land to help it recover so that he can begin cropping on it again. So en engaging in uh, mushroom production as an alternative livelihood is a way that will sustain them till the land begins to work on itself. So far, the compost generated by the mushroom farmer has been modest. The International Growth Center estimates that 250 million US dollars will be needed to reclaim the illegal mining devastating land in the western region of Ghana alone. We need close collaboration of all the actors so that we have political actors, traditional or local leaders, the chiefs and people in the community, the citizens themselves, and then, of course, the research community. So this kind of close collaboration is critical to make sure that we are all uh, acting in unison. In October 2021, the government launched the National Alternative Employment and Livelihood Program in Tarqua, in the west side of Ghana. This is an initiative to reintegrate illegal gold miners via land reclamation and reforestation programs, as well as projects in agriculture, agribusiness, vocational training and entrepreneurship. They aim to create 220,000 direct and indirect jobs. One year after its launch, the program coordinator claims to have already generated 80,000 jobs. It remains to be seen whether this initiative can be exported to other gold mining regions, such as here in the Argentine Kingdom, where gold miners are looking for better opportunities to earn a living. Elodie Toto is a foreign correspondent based in Senegal. As we heard, declaring something illegal isn't necessarily enough. Often there have to be financial incentives as well in order to create lasting and systemic change. What role does financing have in the transition to a cleaner economy? This is a question Pamela Coke Hamilton faces every day. She's the executive director of the International Trade Center. We negotiate a lot of agreements. Everybody does it the world over. 
And we've become very good at it. The problem is translating trade into actual development on the ground for people's lives. How has it translated into making their lives better? The task at hand is huge. One of Coke Hamilton's biggest projects is helping developing countries reduce pollution as part of the Paris Agreement. It's true that the U.S. has done more to cause climate change than any other country to date. And China is the biggest polluter on any given year. But Coke Hamilton says that that doesn't mean developing countries should be left out of the benefits that come from cleaner energy. She told me about some of the most interesting projects she's seeing. For example, in Ghana, one of the countries that we've been working with a lot on this is how do we help with sustainable production? And one of the things we've been trying to do is, besides cocoa, which is, of course, they're the second largest producer in the world, we try to also look at fruit trees, timber, um, and also even banana trees what we call dynamic agroforestry, multi-cropping, because what that does is it reduces the wear and tear on the land, and it also increases the yield, and it also increases the ability for them to continue to produce. These kinds of measures are necessary because one of the biggest challenges is fighting the deforestation battle. And cocoa, next to, of course, gold mining, or illegal gold mining, is the second largest um, denuder of the environment in terms of agricultural production. So what we do is work with them to do this kind of dynamic agroforestry through Alliances for Action. We also partner with buyers. So they actually also help us. So we partner with Co-op, we partner with uh, Chocolat Alba, we partner with Fair Trade Africa, as well as the uh, Coapa Coco Farmers Union. Um, and then we work on the diversification so that we have a broader range of exports and a broader range of production. That's how we're trying to meet the challenges. We also have climate smart agriculture programs. So we work with them on uh, recycling of water, of recycling waste, of trying to ensure that they are in a circular economy situation that allows them to you know, improve their production yield, as well as reduce waste and reduce the carbon footprint. Hmm. I mean, how, how is that work going? Is it an uphill battle to make these changes, which are pretty like substantial ones in terms of the local economy and how it's, it's operating? And I mean, like when people are struggling or need work, right? Like they'll go to a lot of lengths to, to try to, to try to get by, um, which is completely understandable. Right. So how is that? How's that going in practice in terms of making these changes? It's not easy. Huh? Mm -hmm. I mean, the truth is I come from a developing country. There's always the, 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 the battle between survival and doing the right thing sometimes. And a lot of times, of course, you need to survive. And so people tend sometimes to undertake make things that don't necessarily comply with what are the, the the laws but the truth is if you can make 10 to 50 times more from something other than cocoa then the tendency is to shift to that but I think this is where the issue of my systemic problem comes in chocolate is a multi-billion dollar affair yeah but the two biggest producers who are 60 percent of the cocoa yield, get very little from it. The same is true for coffee. 
The same is true for cobalt, which goes into the electric vehicles. The same is true for any commodity that you could possibly name under the sun. Hmm. And this is my issue with the absence of real systemic change. Because while we keep moving the goalpost on different things, which are necessary and which are required, many, if not most, commodity-dependent developing countries remain the same. So for three to 400 years, the system has been, you export primary commodities, you re-import the value added of those commodities. There needs to be a shift, in my view, in the aid for trade dynamic that moves them up the value chain to the point where they can begin to increase their value added processing. You know, why can't it be that they make more of the paste, more of the cocoa, more of the... There are companies that we've been working with in, in, in Ghana, especially, and Niche Cocoa is one, Fair Afrique is another. But it ought to be something that is not an, uh, an aberration, you know, or an anomaly. It ought to be the natural rule. Mm. And that hasn't happened. The fact that the biggest exporter of coffee, I think, is the Netherlands tells you something. <laughs> it's, it's, something is a little odd in, in the whole scenario. You know what I mean? And so I think it's important that we also look at the wider systemic problem that we have. I think there also needs to be a systemic shift in terms of who produces what and at what level. I'm so glad that you brought that up because this season of the podcast, we've been focusing on this idea of a just transition, which you know I think gets broadly applied to any issue of justice that's related to the shift from fossil fuels to, to cleaner energy, right? Which obviously needs to happen. And it, it does highlight, I mean, I, I'm so glad that you're highlighting the ways in which just the global economy is set up to, to e- extract resources from certain poorer parts of the world in a very like colonial way, you know, in a sense. And I'm totally with you that that needs to change. I, I'm, cu- I'm really curious, like what you see as steps that the world should be taking to ensure that in this moment of transition, hopefully when economies are changing and the way we produce energy at least hopefully is changing maybe that can be a pressure point for some of these bigger discussions in a really optimistic way but i'm curious what you what you think about it how you see it well if i had my way i don't get my way a lot (laughs) (laughs) you can have your way right now (laughs) thank you (laughs) if i had my way i think the first thing would be to to have a conversation one of the things I've learned in my 30 years of negotiations and of trade and of engaging is that the first thing has to be a willingness to do it. Hmm. And once there's a willingness to do it, it gets done. Which suggests that there hasn't been a willingness to do it yet. So for me, the first thing would be to have that conversation, to bring it out on the table and say, look, this is, this is the reality. This is the dynamic we're facing. And it's true of virtually every single commodity and commodity-based country. You know, except for maybe Botswana, which managed to do a 51, 49% thing with the beers. Other than that, pretty much it's the, that's the scenario. Mm. So we have this conversation. And then we have to have also a conversation with the private sector and the developed countries 
at the table to say, okay, how do we invest in Africa? Say, let's take Africa. How do we invest in a way that builds capacity, that gives them IP rights, that actually transfers technology. I mean, transfer of technology has been in the whole lexicon for the last 60 years. Mm -hmm. How much technology has actually been transferred? Mm -hmm. You look at the COVID scenario, what happened with the vaccines? You know, once again, the stark differential was almost embarrassing in, mm. in terms of how it played out. So I think there has to be that conversation. And if we could convene that conversation and have maybe even pick one of the commodities, whichever one, doesn't matter. For me now, it would be cobalt. Why? Because the very essence of the movement towards alternative cars, et cetera, the EVs, is based on cobalt. Cobalt, yeah. One commodity, which is 70% of which comes from one country. It's the DRC, right? Where, yes. Yeah, where most cobalt comes from. And it, I mean, it shows up in, in um, electric vehicle batteries, but also in, in a lot of like clean energy technology. Yeah. Everywhere. A telephone, you name it. Exactly. Yeah. So the entire green energy drive, green energy technology, et cetera, is built on the back of one country. But that country is not in a real way developing or benefiting from that. And so there's something kind of wrong with that, in my view. That's one of the things we've been working with as well with the African continental free trade area process. How do we begin the links across Africa along the various value chains to ensure that they are able to take advantage of this green thrust, you know? The production of electric vehicles can take place in Africa. Why not? There are highly educated people. There are highly uh, successful industries. There's South Africa. There's Nigeria. They are there. I mean, I'm so glad you're raising these issues because it's like a critical thing to for climate policy people, right, to like open their minds to the whole of the human experience, right? Because I think so often it gets thought of that you know, it's a conversation about uh, reducing energy usage, right? And and also switching the the sources of that energy and making them cleaner. But it's also a, a huge inequity that so many people in the world don't have access at all. And that is, I think, a very missing part of the climate conversation. Exactly. And I think that is the, that's the issue. It has to be about people. And part of the problem in many of these constructs, whether it is about climate change or about, you know, uh, intellectual property or about, you know, the rules. It needs to be centered on the people. How do people fit into this? How do people benefit? How do people get to live? While we're having this important and existential discussion about climate change, because that's what it is, we also need to look at how do we bring about change that at the same time does not destroy, but actually uplifts and benefits. Because at the end of the day, even if Europe or the US or others meet their climate requirements, if the other 5 billion people in the world do not, then it's pointless, it's one earth. Pamela Coke Hamilton is the executive director of the International Trade Center based in Geneva. Next week on Heat of the Moment, 
we wrap up our season on the just transition with a look to the future. We'll hear from someone who's left the fossil fuel industry behind. And we'll be doing a live Twitter Spaces conversation with Katherine Wilkinson, executive director of the All We Can Save project. You can join that conversation and ask us questions. That happens on Wednesday, March 8th at 3 p.m. Eastern. Check out our show notes for more information. And if you missed that conversation live, you can always find it in your podcast feed. Heat of the Moment is a partnership between Foreign Policy and the Climate Investment Funds. Our production staff includes Rosie Julin, Rob Sachs, Scott Andrews, Hugh Seawright, Dan Efron, Laura Rossbrow-Tellum, Claudia Tatey, and Yure Wu. The Climate Investment Funds is a nonpartisan champion of climate action. Political views and opinions expressed in this series do not necessarily represent those of the Climate Investment Funds, Foreign Policy, or their partners. Until next week, I'm John Sutter. Thanks for listening.